Amen. Let me invite you to take a seat. Yeah, we didn't know a few days ago if we were going to be able to do this, so it is so great to see you. And let me reiterate what Ashley said earlier. Pastor Byron, Angie, our staff, we have been praying for all of you. And even though we are so fortunate that the storm took a turn to the south, we didn't have direct impact, we do know that many of you... Without power, some of you have been impacted by flooding. So if you need anything at all, please do not hesitate to reach out. Info at c3church.cc. That's the email address. Just send us an email. We'd love to connect you with resources or do whatever we can to help you through the storm, literally and figuratively. But thank you for being here this morning. Um, We're going to start this morning with a question, a very important question. How many of you are Harry Potter fans? Show of hands. Yeah, okay, kind of weak, but all right, we got, we got some. Listen, when my kids were growing up, Harry Potter was all the rage, and one of my fondest and favorite memories with my kids was reading those books with them. And so Emma, our oldest, we started when she was about six or seven, and I started reading aloud to her. We would do a chapter or two a night, and then as she got more proficient at reading, we'd kind of go back and forth. She'd read a paragraph, I'd read a paragraph. We got about halfway through book four, I believe, and I think she started to do the math. She's like, man, at this pace, I'm going to be 15 years old before we finish the series. So, um, Dad, I know this has been fun, but do you mind if I just go ahead and read the rest on my own? And I was like, yep, totally good. Because I got to start again with my next daughter, Ansley. And so, started again, six or seven years old. This time, we made it through two books. And she's like, "Uh uh-uh, this is taking way too long, Dad. I can read a lot faster silently than you can read out loud, so I'm just going to take it from here. And then you can imagine, I got to my youngest son. We started, I think we started when he was five, we got one book in, and he's like, nope, I'm taking it from here, Dad, I'm good. But we, we then were able to watch all of the movies together, and it was really cool watching my kids watch the movies, having read the books, neat doing that as a family. Um, but I'm going to talk about one particular scene in Harry Potter, and it comes kind of at the end of the series, the end of book six, so huge spoiler alert. If you've never seen Harry Potter and you want to see it, maybe close your ears for the next two minutes. But I feel like I don't really need to issue a spoiler alert because the Statue of Limitations is up. Like, the books came out 20 years ago, movie over 10 years ago. I feel like that's kind of on you if you haven't seen it yet. But if you want to see it at some point, close your ears for the next few minutes. I'll do a wave of my hand when we're done describing this scene. But at the end of book six, we find Dumbledore, who's kind of the the wise sage of the Harry Potter series. He's the headmaster at Hogwarts, and I think Dumbledore's character is best described as if you took, if you took Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, you uh, mixed in a little bit of Yoda, you added some, I don't know, maybe Santa Claus, and then maybe a little Nicolas Cage to boot. Um, that's kind of Dumbledore's character. Great character, but um, he has been in this battle with the antagonist, which is Lord Voldemort. So he's been weakened from this battle, and he gets to the point where he is in a room, and he's kind of surrounded by Lord Voldemort's, Lord Voldemort's cronies. And it looks like this is the end. But then in walks another character, Severus Snape. Now, if you're not familiar with the series, Snape's character is like an enigma. He's a teacher at the Hogwarts school, but you never know what side he's on. Like, first of all, he's a super unlovable character. Like, he never smiles. Nobody likes Snape. But you you go back and forth throughout the series. Is he on the good guy's side? Is he on the bad guy's side? I don't know. Well, we're at the point in the series where 
we know 95% he's a good guy. Like he's doing everything he can to help our hero, Harry Potter, defeat Lord Voldemort. So we, we find Dumbledore. He's surrounded by Lord Voldemort's cronies. It looks like the end. Snape walks in and you're thinking, okay, maybe Snape can do something. And then you see Dumbledore look at Snape and just say, Severus, please. And then Severus takes out his wand. He points it right at Dumbledore and kills him. And I'm like, no, no, this is like, this is Dumbledore, the most important, I mean, second to Harry Potter, but the most important character in the book. Like, what? why are we killing him off right at the end? No, don't do this. And Snape, Snape, I thought you were a good guy. What are you doing? Like, why have you killed Dumbledore? And then the book ends. The movie ends. And you're like, no, what, come on, J.K. Rowling, seriously? You can't do this to us. Well, then, then we get to book seven. And at the very beginning of book seven, we get a different insight. We get a different perspective. We get a little bit of background information that helps inform what happened at the end of book six. See, what we find out is that Dumbledore and Severus Snape, they had a conversation. And Dumbledore confided in him that he had this incurable disease and he was going to die. But the only way that this power that Harry Potter needed could be transferred to Harry Potter was whoever killed Dumbledore would get that power and they would have to give it to Harry Potter. So if, if Voldemort or his cronies kill Dumbledore, that's the end. And so what we thought, what we thought was a plea of help from Dumbledore and what we thought was an act of betrayal from Severus Snape turns out the complete opposite. It was actually an act of honor, an act of faithfulness. He knew that if he killed Dumbledore like he had asked, he would be given the power. He could pass it on to Harry Potter, and Harry could have ultimate victory. Okay, for those of you that needed the spoiler alert, we're done. Like, you can listen now. But why, why do I share that story? Because I think so many times, whether it's in the past, whether it's now, maybe sometime in the future, we find ourselves at the end of book six, don't we? We, we look at our circumstances, we look at what's happening in our life, and it just doesn't line up with what we think should be happening. It doesn't line up with what we know about God. And so how do we reconcile that? And listen, we've got this prayer wall at the left exit um, as you leave, and, and so many of you share prayer requests, and our staff prays for those every single week. And we get insight into kind of what you're going through. And so many of you, you're praying for like chronic pain or maybe a terminal disease, maybe for you or a family member. Some of you are praying for prodigal children, children that have left the church or maybe never made the decision to follow Christ and you see the path they're on and it's, it's breaking your heart. Some of you are praying for relationships. You're going through a divorce, maybe a, a breakup with someone you're dating, maybe some family drama you're having to navigate. For some of you, life just hasn't turned out like you'd hoped, right? Maybe you're single or still single, and you thought, There's, didn't think I'd be single at this point in my life, but, but you are. Some of you, marriage is a lot harder than you thought. Some of you, your career just didn't turn out like you'd hoped. You're stuck in what you feel like is a dead-end job, and you just don't know what to do next. Many of you are battling bereavement and grief. Like you have gone through unexplainable loss. Maybe you've lost someone in your family. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a loved one. But all of us find ourselves in these times where we're at the end of book six 
And, and here's the challenge. If we're a Christ follower, and I'm going to address both groups here because maybe there's some here today that haven't made that decision to follow Christ. But if you're a Christ follower, here's the challenge for us. We know over here God is good. Like when we make the decision to accept Christ, we know God is our heavenly father. He has got an abundant life for us. He's got a purpose and a plan for our life. We know his character is good. Everything is good. And then we know over here, when we get to the end of our life, God is really good. We get to enter his presence. We get to be with him in heaven forever. Everything is perfect. Sin is removed. We don't have to deal with anything that we have to deal with on earth. Like this, this is the ultimate goal. So we know God is really good over here. But what do we do right here? What, what do we do in the middle? What do we do in the here and now when our circumstances, when what we're facing, when what we're going through in life doesn't seem to jive with a good God over here and a good God over here? Now, if you're not a Christ follower, probably your biggest objection to becoming a Christian or to following Jesus is if God is so good, if God is good over here and God is good over here, why does he allow bad things to happen here? Why does he allow so many prayers to go unanswered here? Well, this morning, I hope to address both of those questions. And to do that, we're going to be in Psalm 23, one of the most famous psalms in all the Bible. But I do want to give a little background. And listen, we're going to jump right back into Romans next week. In fact, Pastor Byron will be here next week. And I'm pretty sure we're concluding the Roman series that we started in January. So you do not want to miss that. But this morning, we're going to take a commercial break, and we're going to be in Psalm 23. Now, David is the author of Psalm 23, and most scholars believe he wrote it at one of two times in his life. But the circumstances were pretty similar. Early in David's life, he had defeated Goliath. He was drumming up support from the people of Israel. God had promised him that he was going to be king, but at the moment, there was King Saul. So Saul saw the writing on the wall. He saw that the people were moving their support to David. He knew and heard that, uh-oh, it had been prophesied that David was going to be king. So the way Saul was going to solve that problem is, I'm going to chase down David and I'm going to kill him. If he's dead, then I can remain king. And so some scholars believe that David wrote Psalm 23 when he was on the run from Saul. But then there's a time later in David's life, same situation, but this time it's one of his sons. So Absalom wants to be king. He wants to steal the kingship from his dad. So he pursues David, wants to kill him. We thought we had family problems. David is dealing with a son that's trying to kill him, and he writes Psalm 23. But in either scenario, here's what we know of David. He's, he's on the run. He is fearing for his life, he is alone, and he doesn't know when his next meal is going to come. He is in some dire circumstances. The second thing about Psalm 23 is it's arguably one of the most beautifully written psalms in all of the Bible. And, and David pulls from this incredible metaphor because he grew up as a shepherd. And so he's going to kind of go deep into some of this shepherding imagery. And I would imagine today, anyone a shepherd in here? Like modern day shepherd? No, I didn't think so. So we're going to explain what it was to be a shepherd back then, hopefully kind of unpack some of what David is talking about. And even though Psalm 23 is a super familiar psalm to most of you, man, I hope we can look at it through fresh eyes this morning and really see what David was communicating. Because I think, here's what we're going to find. The overall theme is like this secret sauce. It's like the key ingredient to you experiencing the abundant life in Christ. 
If you want a life of contentment, if you want a life of fulfillment, if you want a life of joy, if you want a life of satisfaction, if you want a life that's meaningful and significant, it all comes back to this key. And David is going to uncover that for us. And I think, for those of you that are Christ followers, if we just have a slight shift in our perspective when it comes to our relationship with God, it can really change everything for us. So let's get started. Psalm 23, we are going to break this down. David starts, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Some of your versions might say, Nothing shall I want. So let me ask you a question this morning. And take some time, answer it honestly. As you sit here in this service, on your seat, as you sit here exactly as your life is, can you honestly say that you lack nothing? That you are fully satisfied? Now listen, it's not that we don't want our lives to improve, right? Like certainly we all want to strive for improvement. We want to strive for excellence. We, we want to get better. We want things to improve in our life. But, but if nothing else changed, are you satisfied? Are you content? Can you say, I lack nothing? Because remember David's circumstances. Like he's not writing this in the castle. He's not writing this at a feast, he, he's writing this when he's on the run, when he's alone, when his circumstances are dire. The first thing he says in this psalm is, I lack nothing. There's nothing else that I need in this moment. And why can he say that? He can say it because he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And so there's two primary responsibilities that a shepherd has. It's to guide the sheep and to protect the sheep. That's what a shepherd does. And so for a shepherd to do his job well, he has got to always be close by, and he always has to keep his eyes on the sheep. Those are his two primary responsibilities. Stay close by, keep his eyes on the sheep. So David knew, no matter what he was going through in his life, that God was always close by, and he always keeps his eye on his sheep. David was unpacking and figuring out for himself that it was the presence of God, the power of the presence of God in his life that allowed him to say, I lack nothing. But he doesn't, doesn't stop there. Now he's going to compare God's presence to the two most important things we need in life. Look at what he says next. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, what we're going to learn this morning, unfortunately, sheep, not smart animals. And unfortunately, God in this metaphor is the shepherd, and yes, we are the sheep. So don't take it personally. We're all in the same boat. We're all a little stupid when it comes to comparison to God. So he says that he's going to lie down in green pasture. So two things they're going to do in a green pasture. Number one, if they're surrounded by food and they're hungry, they're going to eat. So if you're a sheep in a fresh green pasture, you are going to eat. The only reason you're going to lie down is if you are completely satisfied, if you are full. So when David says, he makes me lie down in green pastures, the image there is that David is totally surrounded by food. He's got everything he would need to fill his belly, to <clears throat> make sure he relieved his hunger pains, but he doesn't need to because God's presence is there. And so God makes him lie down in a green pasture with food all around him. Now, this metaphor, if you will, or this symbol is found throughout the scriptures. 
if we go back to a little bit further back in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, they were promised the promised land, but they kind of screwed up. And so they ended up, they ended up wandering the wilderness for 40 years. And, and so what God said is, listen, I don't, you're not going to need to worry about gathering for food, hunting for food. I am going to provide your food. And so God made this like little Ritz cracker thing, and they called it manna, but he made it appear every single day. They would just go out, and it would be outside on the ground, and they could collect it. They could eat it. But the one rule with that food was after 24 hours, it would spoil. You couldn't hoard it. You, you couldn't save it for later because he wanted them to realize that, no, 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 God, God is your provider. Every single day, I am going to give you the food that you need. You don't rely on gathering it yourselves. You don't rely on hunting. I'm going to be the one that satisfies you. I'm going to be the one that provides your food. Well, then we jump over to the New Testament, and you might be familiar with the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus takes two loaves, or five loaves, two fish. He feeds more than 5,000 people. And then at the end of John 6, that chapter where we find the story, he, he refers to himself as the bread of life. And then we go a little bit further, and Jesus is in the wilderness, and he's being tempted by Satan. So Jesus is trying to get some time alone with God. He's fasting. He's hungry. Satan shows up on the scene and says, hey, hey, Jesus, like, I know you're hungry. You've got the power just to change these stones into bread, and you'll have all the food that you need. And then Jesus gives that famous response. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So here in Psalm 23 and throughout the Bible, God paints this picture that, yes, food is something we think we need. It's an earthly need. But when it comes to our, our spiritual needs, God's presence is all that we need. He will supply everything we need when it comes to his presence. He doesn't stop us at food, though. Next part of that verse, he leads me beside quiet waters. Same deal. Like a sheep's going to do two things. Two things. He's going to walk beside the water or he's going to drink the water. The only reason the sheep would not drink the water is if he was fully satisfied. He wasn't thirsty. And again, we go back to the New Testament and, and Jesus is there at the woman with the well. You remember this story? And he points to the water in the well and he says, whoever drinks of this water, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of my water, the living water, you will thirst no more. So whether it's food, whether it's water, David is painting this picture that, no, 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 God's presence is even better than that. Even the most basic needs that you think you need, like God has provided that through his presence. And he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Then he says, he refreshes my soul. Now, one of the biggest problems with sheep, again, not the smartest animal and maybe not the most coordinated animal either, um, if, if a sheep falls down or maybe it lies down and it's trying to scratch its back and it rolls over, um, oftentimes the sheep becomes cast, which means it's stuck on its back. It's either gotten too fat, its wool is too thick, and it can't roll itself back over. So kind of imagine a bug on its back and it's wiggling its legs. That's kind of what sheep do. And so the shepherd is there to kind of flip the sheep back over. But before the shepherd can do that, he's got to restore the circulation in the legs. If the shepherd were just to flip the sheep right over, it would fall right back down again because it doesn't have any blood circulating in its legs. And so the shepherd would literally have to rub each of the legs of the sheep, make sure that blood flow was restored, and then flip the sheep over. Then the sheep would be prepared. So listen, man, when we're at the end of book six, when we've got circumstances around us that don't seem to line up with a good God, God is not just going to flip you over. He is actually going to restore 
your soul and prepare you for what's to come in book seven. So when God restores us, he doesn't just flip us over. He actually gets that blood circulating again so we can stand and be prepared for what he has next. And then he continues about to close out this particular section. He says, he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Now, this is a quick throwback to last Sunday. If you missed Pastor Byron's message last Sunday, please check it out online or on YouTube. But what he talked about was sometimes, sometimes our, our plans for our life, the things that we've put into place, don't necessarily match up with God's purposes for our life. And, and so sometimes God's got to do some things in our life to kind of get us from our plans over to his purposes. Well, with sheep, again, stupid animal, what they do is they are ferocious creatures of habit. So they just do the same thing over and over again. So they walk the exact same path over and over again. They keep their head down. They see the dead grass. They're killing the grass. They also, they poop in the same spot that they walk. Like they don't move off the path. They just poop right where they are. The other sheep walk through it. Sometimes they just sit in it. Sound familiar? Yeah, sometimes we crap up our lives and just decide to stay in it. But sheep do the same thing. And so what David is saying is, what he's saying here is, listen, you don't want to stay on the same path. You've got to lift your head. You've got to look at the shepherd. And what the shepherd's going to do is he's going to lead you. He's going to lead you on a new path. He's going to take you out of the contaminated dead grass path. And he's going to lead you to fresh grass. And the only way that happens is we've got to take our eyes off our circumstances and what's going on, lift them up, look at the shepherd, and see where he's leading. Because sometimes, sometimes the, the shepherd is leading you on a new path. And David describes it as the right path. The only way we see the right path is we've got to keep our eyes on the shepherd. So before we transition to this next section, so what David has done these first few verses is he's talking about God. He restores my soul. He leads me along quiet waters. We're about to transition into the section where he's talking to God. But before we do that, I want to hone in on this main theme that David is trying to, to communicate. And I want to ask it in the form of a question. And again, honestly answer this question in your life. Are you pursuing the presence of God or are you pursuing the blessings of God? Are you pursuing the presence of God in your life or are you pursuing the blessings of God in your life? And listen, these two are very closely related. It's easy to conflate the two of them. If I were to ask and kind of go down the road this morning and ask everyone, share how God has blessed you. Every single one of you could name one or two things. Many of you would have a very long list of how God has blessed you. But notice, notice what David doesn't do in this psalm. Given his circumstances, given that he's on the run, given that he's alone, given that he's potentially about to die, you never hear David say, God, can you just get me out of this? God, can you defeat my enemy? God, can you intervene in some way to make this better for me? Please, just, just do something. Now listen, there are times when David does pray that. But what David is communicating here in Psalm 23 is this foundation, this foundation for his faith. And listen, the foundation for our faith has to be built on the fact that God's presence is what is primary in our life. Not, not what God can do for us, but who he is to us. And David is starting to learn this. And 
I'm so guilty of this, and maybe you are too. How many times have you kind of bargained with God? Like, God, if you'll just do this, then everything will be okay. Or, God, if you'll just bring the right person into my life so we can get married, then I'll have this amazing family, and then my life will be complete. Or, or God, if you'll, just, if you'll just heal this one thing in my life, then, then everything will be so much better. Or, God, if you'll just do this in my kid's life, or, or if you'll just do this in my career. Like, we find ourselves doing that all the time. And listen, again, it is okay to pray for those things. Hear me correctly. It is okay to pray for God's blessings. But if our motivation and our pursuit in our life is what God can do for us and not who God is in our life, then we're going to miss it. We're going to miss it. And so we need to stop bargaining with God, and we need to trust that his presence is the true blessing in our lives. And that's what David was starting to understand. So he makes this transition now, and now we're going to get a sneak peek into his personal prayer to God. And he says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. So some of your versions might say, even though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death. Those are like the three worst descriptive words, right? Like those are three places you don't want to be. I don't want to be in the valley. I don't want to be in the shadow. And I don't want to be anywhere near death. But even in the midst of that, and that's where David was, even in the midst of that, what does he say? He says, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Not because you'll take care of everything. Not because there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Not because there's a blessing around the corner. No, no, no. I will not fear because your presence is here. Your presence is with me. And then he says, your rod and staff, they comfort me. Stick that in your back pocket for just two minutes. We're going to come right back to it, I promise. Promise. Next part. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, I love this image. And this is kind of how I imagine this verse. How many of you have seen movies like Braveheart or The Kingdom, and there's like this epic battle scene on kind of an open field, and it's all like medieval hand-to-hand combat, and people are everywhere, and it's crazy. So I imagine a scene like that, and right in the middle of that battlefield is just this nice dining set for two people. And there's this like silver tray with a cover on it, maybe underneath like a New York strip with a little blue cheese cooked medium rare, Got a nice bottle of red wine. Like, this is my image. You can have your own image, but this is what I think of when I, when I read this verse. And, and, and I'm just dining there, just dining there with God. That's the picture David's painting. Like, with all the crap, all the junk flying around him, in the midst of his circumstances, God prepares a table for him where he can just enjoy his presence. He can just enjoy the relationship he has with God. Now, now how does he do that? Is that, is that your first thought when you're in a battle? When you've got a medical battle, when you've got a financial battle, a personal battle, spiritual battle, whatever it is, is that your first thought? You know what, I'm just going to hit the pause button and I'm going to have a nice meal with God. I'm going to just take some time and enjoy my relationship with him. No, for so many of us, and this is what I do so often, I start to fight my battles. Like, this is urgent. I've got to do something about this. I've got to figure this out. What what, what am I going to do to change my circumstances? But that's not what David does. He says, God prepares a table right in the midst of his enemies, and I can just sit and dine with him. Now, why? Why can he do that? Go to your back pocket. Let's pull out that rod and staff from the previous verse. 
The reason David is able to say that is because David is not the one with the rod and staff. God is the one with the rod and staff. And what is the primary tool for a shepherd to fend off the enemies in the sheep's life? It's the rod and the staff. So many times we try to fight our own battles, and it's God that holds the rod and staff. He's the one that wants to fight our battles. He's the one that's promised to take care of the enemies in our life. So when we have those battles, when we have our circumstances just looking like it's a mess, we've got to understand that it is okay. It is okay to pause. It is okay to rest in and enjoy the relationship we have with our Heavenly Father and trust that he's the one with the rod, he's the one with the staff, and he will fight our battles for us. It gets gooder. Hold on. Last verse. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So when David says goodness and love, that, like our English language, just does not do it justice. So this is the Hebrew word hesed. And it means the most powerful, unconditional, never going to stop pursuing you, steadfast love. It is in the strongest possible language how much God loves David, how much he loves you. But this is my favorite part. He says that kind of love, it follows you. Now, how many times do we talk about being a Christ follower? Right? When you accept Christ, one of the things we do is we follow Jesus He leads and we follow. He sets the path for us. Just as we talked about earlier with the shepherd, right? The shepherd leads us on a new path. This is what's so amazing about this passage. David flips that coin and says, not only do we follow God, do we follow Christ, will he prepare a path for us? He is also right behind you. He can fight any battle that you can't see. He is going to pursue you. He is going to encourage you. And so as a Christ follower, not only do we have God in front of us, We also have him behind us. And then he closes with this this phrase, I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, so many times we read Psalm 23 at a funeral. I'm sure you've heard it read at a funeral. And it does bring a lot of hope, a lot of encouragement um, to those that are experiencing the loss. But I think we get this last part of the verse misinterpreted. Because we often read it, At a funeral, we think, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, later, at some point, maybe in the future when everything on earth is done, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's not what David is saying. He is saying, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever right now right in the middle of my circumstances. God's presence is not something we wait on. It's something we have access to right this minute, no matter what your circumstances are. So listen, when it comes to your personal life and following Jesus, man, if you're focused on, God, if you'll just fill in the blank, if we focus on the blessings, so many times we can miss his presence. And his presence is the ultimate gift and blessing that he's provided for us. Listen, if you, if you will make his presence a priority, all the blessings are going to take care of themselves. Now listen, if you're not a Christ follower, and you've been listening this morning, and you, again, you, you've heard that God is good, 
you know you can have that same access to our Heavenly Father. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you can do to earn it. He has done all the work for you. He has given his one and only son that died on the cross so your sins could be forgiven. And sin is what kept us from that relationship with God. But because Jesus died on the cross, paid the penalty for us, we now have access to our heavenly father. And this is it. It's in Romans. It says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. So just acknowledge that he's Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. Those are the two requirements. You just confess with your mouth, mouth, you acknowledge it, and you believe in your heart that God really did raise on that third day and has provided an opportunity for you to have an eternal relationship with him. So I want to ask that everyone bow your heads, close your eyes, and if you're here this morning and you've never made that decision to follow Christ, to experience that kind of love, that unconditional going to pursue you to the ends of the earth kind of love. I mean, you can do that. You can pray this out loud or you can just pray it silently in your heart. You just say, dear Lord, I acknowledge that I've got this sin in my life that I can't do anything about. But I also know that you sent your son Jesus so that my sins could be completely forgiven. And because of that, and because you rose on the third day, I can have an eternal relationship with you. So as best I know how, I give all of my life to you, and I trust you with my eternity. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. If you just prayed that prayer, we would love to know it. You can text your name to 407-487-8311, and Pastor Byron will be praying for you this week. And also, we want to thank you for your faithful generosity. You can go to giveC3.cc or you can text C3Orlando to 77977. Thank you so much for how you give. And if you are in Central Florida, please join us in person at our campus at 9.30 or 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Have a great week.